Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This week is Parshas Pikudei, and we're going to start learning about the halachas of Purim. And this week we'll concentrate on Mishlech Manas, so that we don't talk about it after everybody has already made their Mishlech Manas. So the mitzvah of Mishlech Manas is to give two portions of food to one person. That's the minimum necessary to be to this mitzvah. Two portions of food to one person. Now the question is, how different do the two portions of food have to be? Can they be two pieces of cake? Now, my mother claims that back in Europe, when she grew up, the way they would do Mishlach Manas is they would go to the neighbor with a plate of cake, and the neighbor would take off like two pieces, and then they would go back home and you know keep the plate. Some contemporary Paiskim write that this wouldn't work, and they reason that just because you cut a piece of cake into two pieces, that doesn't make it two portions. It's still one cake. In other words, if it's the exact same thing, then how do you call it two portions? Maybe it's just one big portion. So according to that, what you need to do is to give two distinctly different items, which can't be considered one thing. For example, chocolate cake and cinnamon cake, uh, or any two kinds of cake or cookies, so that it can't be considered one large portion but the fact that they're both cakes is not itself a problem. It's just that they should be distinctly different. And this is Allah Chalamaisa. It's fine to give two distinct items, even though they're the same bracha, and essentially the same kind of thing. So, for example, you can give a vegetable platter with different vegetables, and that's fine. Although it's only vegetables, it's all bayer priyadama, but they are distinct and they're separate. Truthfully, you could argue that even giving two apples, each one a different kind, like a you know, a Red Delicious and a Granny Smith should be okay, but still, there are some pies can maintain. Um, some pies can maintain that they can be considered one large portion because apples are apples, and like a box of chocolates, although they're made different flavors, probably will be looked at one large portion. So, different vegetables served separately are considered two distinct items, and that you can give, and that's fine, and that that you get with that. Like, um, but let's say you're giving a salad, and um, you mix the salad together, then it will be considered one portion, uh, even if it's the kind of salad that requires two brachas. Be, like, like you know, it has croutons or whatever kind of ingredients it has, because once it's mixed together, it's one thing, even if you add deli to the salad. If you give the components of the salad separately, like, you know, you would have a little container of deli, a little container of um, salad dressing, a little container of croutons, whatever, however it is you divide up the salad, but you don't mix it together, you give it separately, and the person then is supposed to mix it together, that's fine. That would be considered just separate portions and you'd be yaitza. But if you actually mix it together yourself and you just give them the salad, that would only be considered one portion and you would have to add something else. <clears throat> there's, now, there's no minimum amount specified to qualify, qualify as a portion. Ostensibly, excuse me, it can be small. However, one thing is made clear that what you have to give it should be at least something you would give to a guest as a respectable portion. So like a slice of cake is something you would serve as a dessert to a guest as long as it's a respectable size. It doesn't have any specific share. It just should be an, enough that it's respectable. Like, you wouldn't put down five M&Ms in front of the guest. 
So that's not a respectable amount. Each thing is different, so it's up to everybody's discretion to understand what would be enough to be considered a respectable portion. The main thing is that the two portions should be something respectable, which could be ostensibly used by a Suda, like a dessert, a cake, anything. Many forms of candy and the like are questionable if they would qualify as respectable. But again, if there's a sufficient amount, like a candy dish, uh, as clarified earlier, they would qualify. The truth is the best thing to do, if you're making many Mishlechmanis of things that are maybe questionable how respectable they are, it's better to give one Mishlechmanis to something that's clearly, you know, something of like challah and wine or whatever. Give that to one person, and this way you know, you know, you're a And then you can give whatever it is, that, whatever else you're giving, you can give as many people as you like. But, you know, if you give one person something kosher, so you know you're a yaitse with a kosher thing. It's questionable whether water can qualify as a portion. So both water bottles or even sparkling water shouldn't be counted as one of the two manas. Flavored water and soda and that kind of thing definitely does qualify. Whatever you're giving has to be ready to eat. So therefore, tea bags, coffee doesn't count because it needs to be prepared. If someone wants to be cute this year and give a bag of beans and barley, the Kavit Shabbos, you wouldn't be icy with that because it needs to be cooked. Men and women are equally obligated in this mitzvah. However, a married woman doesn't have to go herself and give. It's sufficient that her husband gives one for himself and another one for her sake. You're, you're right to that way. Likewise, if the husband's not around, the woman can give you know, for her and then give for her husband's sake. Children should also give for chinuch once they're old enough, but here too, the family can just give one of their mishlachmanas for the sake of that child. And they're yeah, so with that, it doesn't have to be that, you know, that child holds it and gives it, even though you might want to do that, that's fine, but that's not, it's, not, it's not necessarily what you're obligated. A mishloach manis should not be sent to someone who is in avelus, uh, in, you know, for a parent 12 months and for uh, anybody else 30 days. However, if that person is married, then it can be given to the spouse who's not in avelus. If someone isn't aware of this halacha and sends to an Avel, the Avel may accept the Mishlech Manis. Uh, Avel himself or herself is obligated to send Mishlech Manis and can do as many in the same way that they do it every year. Men should only send Mishlech Manis to men and women to women. Now, one family giving to another family, so you don't have to clarify that it's from the man to the man, it's just one family to another family, that's fine. So mainly this is really applicable to singles. When singles are giving to each other, it should only be man-to-man or woman-to-woman. And if a family is giving to a single, it should be clear that it's either the whole family is giving or it's from the appropriate gender. When, if you're baking from Mishloach Manis, so you have to take challah, you have to be mafresh challah, even though you're making many individual rolls which you plan on giving to different people, you still take challah, as usual, from the dough if you make five pounds. What if you're baking different batches, and this applies to cookies and cake as well, and each batch is less than five pounds? So the ideal approach is like this. You wait until you've made five pounds worth, measured by the flour, and then combine them and take challah from what is already baked. For example, you made two pounds of flour worth of cookies, and you froze them. And then another day, you made another three pounds worth and froze them. So now you have five pounds of challah, uh, five pounds of flour of cookies frozen in your freezer. So you should take out both bags of cookies, open the bags, you don't have to empty them, but open the bags, put them on the counter, cover them with a towel, and then take one cookie for challah. 
same would go for rolls or cake. You, you don't have to give that much for challah. One kezayis portion is sufficient, and actually you're not supposed to give more um, than that because of baltashchus. So you don't give more than absolutely necessary, and that's, and that's how you get to challah. And it's fine that you're giving challah after it's baked. There's no problem with that. If you are buying many dishes or jars to put your mishlech manis on or in, you do have to table those items first and with a bracha. And it doesn't help to line the plates with a napkin or to line the jar with plastic or plastic bags. It will still require tefillah. So whenever you're buying a large amount of kalim for the purpose of giving it together with mishlech manis, you have to keep that in mind that they do need to be tabled if you're going to put food into them. <clears throat> this week in Pasha Pekude, there's an amazing Rashi in the end of this week's Pasha. The Pasik says, Vayavu es mishkan al Moshe. Klai Yisrael brought the Mishkan to Moshe. The way the Pasik reads, it means that they brought the Mishkan unassembled to Moshe. So Rashi explains that they did this because they weren't capable of assembling it. The Karashim, which were the wooden beams that comprised the wall of the Mishkan, were simply too heavy for them to lift. As a side point, it wasn't just a problem of weight because they had many people that could have assembled enough people to help, but it was more a a physics problem because each wall of the Mishkan had to be assembled on the ground of many, many different beams and then lifted. And then the process of lifting it would destroy the clips, the gold clips that held the the wall together. So there was simply no way to lift the wall. So they brought it to Maisha unassembled, and they wanted him to figure out what to do. Rashi explains that this was Minashemayim. Hashem left the assembly to Maisha because Maisha hadn't built anything else in the Mishkan, and that bothered him. But Maisha was human too. He couldn't lift them either. So he asked Hashem, how can a human lift these Krashim? It's impossible. So Hashem replies, you try with your hands to lift them. It will seem as if you're lifting the wall, but they'll stand up on their own, miraculously. And that's why the Pasuk says later, Hukam HaMishkan, the Mishkan got constructed, meaning it happened on its own. Now this is fascinating. Moshe didn't build anything of the Mishkan, and this bothered him. Now truthfully, let's just think about that for itself. It's a Musash in itself. Why didn't Moshe build anything? The answer is Hashem commanded him not to build anything himself. The Medrash says, Hashem told him, you're a king. A king directs his servants. He doesn't do it himself. Nevertheless, the Pasuk testifies, on the day that Moshe completed constructing the Mishkan. Rashi writes that although Betzal and Ahaliyah were the ones who actually constructed the Mishkan, the Pasuk still attributes the building to Moshe. Why? So Rashi answers, because he was Moshe Nefesh, he dedicated himself entirely to the task of overseeing the building, making sure each vessel was completed correctly and perfectly. And because of his dedication, not a single mistake was made, although everything was highly specific and highly detailed. Moshe was intimately involved in the building process to the point where the Torah attributes everything to him. He was the one who truly ensured the success of the Mishkan. So why did he feel bad that he hadn't built anything of the Mishkan? So it must be because it wasn't enough. Moshe wanted to physically build a part of the Mishkan. His mysterious nefesh dedication didn't satisfy him. He wanted more. He wanted to actually build a part. He wanted to be a part of it. And that itself is a whole 
beautiful thought in it in it of itself how that's how much he was striving to grow and to do more and to be able to do better it wasn't enough all that he did and he had sleepless nights making sure that the mishkan was done well no he wanted to be able to actually build a part with his own hands and hashem respected that so hashem reserved the final construction for Misha so that he can actually build the mishkan but there's one problem it's physically impossible for a human to do he can't do it so hashem says no problem you touch it and it'll miraculously spring up but then what did this accomplish once again Misha didn't actually build anything how would he be satisfied and comforted by just touching it and then it springs up like a miracle so clearly to Misha this didn't make a difference why because the reality is we never do anything ourselves Hashem is truly the one doing to Misha whether he exerted himself or not it was merely a show regardless he was aware that Hashem is the one who lifts the crushing whether it's miraculous where Hashem puts strength in his muscles and it seems as if he's lifting the crushing there was no difference to him so what did Misha want then the answer is he wanted to try because that's all that we do once we try the results are out of our hands and often can be miraculous in heaven regardless that results are attributed to us even though we look back and say wait a second we didn't really accomplish that what we did was so little that just kind of happened we just did a tiny bit Hashem attributed to us more importantly Hashem wants us to see what Moshe did he was faced with an impossible task still his job was to try do what he was able to do because that's what Hashem expects from us sometimes the question will lift themselves sometimes they won't but we're obligated to make the effort regardless there's a famous Medrash in Sher Shirim Rabbah Rav Hanina saw the people of his city going to Yerushalayim to be Eulah Regal to the Beis HaMikdash and they were bringing animals to be used for Karbanis now Hanina was very poor and he couldn't afford a carbon but he was determined to bring something not to come empty-handed to Yerushalayim so he went out to a mountain he found a large stone and began to carve the stone he carved it he polished it he decorated it with various carvings and when completed he wanted to bring it to Yerushalayim he said I accept upon myself the obligation to bring this to Yerushalayim that was a nether a real obligation so he looked for porters couldn't carry it himself he looked for porters to carry the heavy stone they quoted him a price a hundred gold coins now if he had that kind of money he would have just bought a carbon so he said I can't pay that so they left so now he didn't know what to do but Hashem sent five malachim who appeared as people they quoted a much more affordable price they said give us five copper coins and we'll bring it to your shalim but there's one condition you have to help us as well you have to lend a hand okay no problem as soon as Hanina lays his hand on the stone he blinks and they were in your shalim he turns around he wants to pay the men but they disappeared so he went to the Lishka Sagazis where the Sanhedrin was and he recounted the story and they told him it seems that Malachim brought your stone to Yerushalayim and he gave the, the coins that he was going to pay the Malachim he gave him to those an amazing story but what's more amazing about this story is that the five Malachim they didn't need his help why did they require of Hanina let a hand why did he have to help why did he have to help out and the answer is that Siyat comes when we do our part. True, Rechinina was in no way capable of lifting the stone and bringing it to Yerushalayim, but he could help. And as soon as he helped, the stone found its way there. 
and the whole effort was then attributed to him. Hashem never requires more than an effort from us. He always requires, requires us to try, even though it seems impossible. When success occurs, although we clearly see that the success had very little to do with what we actually contributed, nevertheless, Hashem attributes the full result to us. That's how the world works. When you think about the Megillah, this theme is very apparent. The nace of Purim is attributed to Mordechai and Esther. But what did they actually do? They, almost, they did almost nothing. Mordechai certainly didn't do anything. He encouraged Esther. And Esther appeared before Achashverosh. From that point and on, it was straight miracle, straight Nisan. Achashverosh didn't kill her because the Malach stretched his scepter. He rewarded Mordechai because Hashem forced him to, woke him in the middle of the night and manipulated him to. He killed Haman because Malachim caused him to become enraged and he was left without a choice. According to the Gemara and Midrashim, what Esther and Mordechai actually did had zero chance of success. And what actually happened was clear to them that it had nothing to do with their actions. Yet that's what Hashem wanted from them. As Mordechai clearly states in the Megillah, you, Esther, you have to go into Achashverosh. She says it's impossible, it's a waste of time. I'm just going to die. And he says you still have to go. And that's all she did, and that's the main thing she did. She tried. And from that point on, all the Nisim, all the miracles that came as a result are all attributed to them because that's all we can ever do. And that's all Hashem expects from us. Have a good night and a good Shabbos.